If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ruth today, Um, specifically uh, Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, I... One of the things that was a big change for me in how I read scripture, or maybe maybe better to say a big change for me in how I understood scripture's role in my life, or even bigger than that, just what is the like what is the point right in all the things that we do. Um, one of the big changes for it, uh, in all that for me was when I recognized what I alluded to earlier in the service, that this is how we understand reality. Does that make sense? It's different than saying, hey, here's a thing to help me through it. Here's a thing to give me strength, or here's a thing to, to kind of comfort me in hard times. That's very, very different than this describes reality to me. Right? Like, this explains to me how things work. Right? How, who God is, right? At the core of the universe, right? It's really important, for example, that there's a trinity, right? It's important to me. It's important to you, too, right? It's really important and critical that there's a trinity because it means at the center of this vast universe is not emptiness and nothingness, but a trying being that loves. At the very center of the universe is, is love. That's important to me, right? That changes the way that you function in this world, that I'm not just hanging on to the grass as we make another lap at millions of miles an hour. I don't know how fast it is, but it's fast, around the sun, right? Like, I just, like that matters to me that I'm not just hanging on, but at the core of my existence, there's a God that not only is loving himself, but has pursued me, right? Like, this defines like, what the world is like, how I'm supposed to understand, and, and, and that's so important because the older I get, the longer I live, the more I walk with Jesus, the longer he's held on to me, the more I realize how bad my instincts are, <laughs> right? Like, like just my instincts of what to do are just, like it's almost to the point now that I'm just like, I don't know, we should just question every thought and feeling that I have, right? Like it's just, they're just wrong all the time. And, and we all have this thing that guides us. And, and we all come into the world this way, understanding reality or discovering reality. And the Bible, it just tells me, it tells us, it reveals to us, it's God telling us in a book what the world is like and where it's going, right? That's, that's different than help me be a better person, this is how it is. And so we, we look into this book primarily not to tell me how to live, but to tell me what God is like and what the world is like. That's for sure going to affect how I live. But to tell me what reality is so that I can then live my life aligning to the reality that God has revealed. Because if I don't align myself to reality, what happens? You just slam your head into the wall over and over again, right? So wanting to align myself to reality. So this beautiful, beautiful story of Ruth, that's what it's here for, right? It's to help us align ourselves to a a reality about what God is like, what the world is like, what I'm like, what's gonna happen. And this this is, it's just just such a beautiful, 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 beautiful story. So here's the deal. This beautiful story of Ruth. Uh, Just quick back 
backdrop, backstory is it's set against the backdrop. There's this beautiful opening phrase, and it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So it's, it's a reference to what's happened right before uh, this, the time of the judges, which is just big, big picture, time of just complete chaos, uh, a time that's described this way. Everybody did whatever they felt like doing. There was no king in the land. Everybody's doing whatever they want. That's the backdrop it's set against. Also, huge heroes, right? These amazing heroes show up in Judges. Uh, They're all flawed deeply, but Deborah and Gideon and Samson, it's huge national level people, right? And God doing national level things. And in the time of that, that, against that backdrop, we have this story of normal, everyday people doing very ordinary, normal things. Very fascinating. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. In a time of chaos, there's this story of ordinary people. So just to catch up, maybe if you weren't with us uh, last week, it's the story of this man. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. It starts off telling us about this man, uh, Elimelech, who takes his family, uh, and they move to Moab because of a famine. So they leave, uh, they leave the promised land. God's placed them in this land. They leave this land. They leave um, Israel, Canaan, and, and they go to Moab. Uh, it's around the other side of the, of the Red Sea, a uh, fertile land. They're, they're immig- they immigrate there because of the famine, to try to find a better life for themselves. Um, and so they get there, and uh, tragedy strikes, right? There's, um, yeah, Elimelech dies, and so Naomi's left alone with her sons. Her sons marry local women, and uh, then they die. So this tragedy strikes, and Naomi is left in this very vulnerable position. And so in this beautiful act one, scene one of this play, uh, she uh, is left vulnerable and says, listen, I'm, I'm, I've heard that God has visited. The famine is over. God's visited Israel. There's nothing holding me here. I'm going back. She starts to head back, and her two daughter-in-law is going with her, and she says, you know, she stops and is like, look, there's nothing, there's nothing in Israel for you guys. You're Moabites, you're widows, I'm a widow, I can't provide sons for you, there aren't going uh, to be husbands for you in Israel, go back to your home, go back to your family's house, go back to your, go back to your gods, and then make Yahweh, the real true God, bless you in the land of, of Chemosh, where, where that, that's the God that they worship in Moab. So go back there, there's nothing for you, both of the daughter-in-laws weep, say no way, we're going with you, and she keeps pushing them and keeps pushing them and says, listen, there's no future, there's no hope. Why would you sign up with me? And one of them's like, you know what? In great tears and great sadness, she obeys, she listens, relents, and goes back. But Ruth says, no way. And in this beautiful speech, she says, I'm never gonna leave you. I'm gonna go with you. And she goes on, it's not just about her. You hear in her heart that it's not just about Naomi, but something she's seen in Naomi. Because she says, not only am I not gonna go back, even after you die, I'm not going back. Your people, they're my people now. When you die, I'm not moving back. I'm gonna stay and be buried next to you. Your God will be my God. Beautiful, right? So she goes with this this sacrificial act of love. I'm gonna go with you even though you have no hope. We'll have no hope together. And they go back and they arrive back uh, at the land. Naomi gets back in this tragic scene, this oh, just heart-wrenching moment. She arrives back in town, and Naomi, uh, people recognize her. They're like, oh my goodness, is this, could this possibly be Naomi? She's been gone a decade. Could it be her? And Naomi's response is, don't call me Naomi, which means beautiful or sweet. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God's dealt bitterly with me. Oh, heart-wrenching. 
But there's this, mote, uh, this note of hint at the end, uh, the epilogue after that scene two back in, Beth, uh, back in Bethlehem, the epilogue of scene one, Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned to the, from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Act two, epilogue. I'm sorry, act two, prologue is this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. All right, let's just stop here. So Elimelech was her husband, Naomi's deceased husband. And they come to this field. And so they they ride back in Bethlehem and and Ruth says, hey, listen, I I need to go glean. I need to do something, right? We have to do something to provide food because widows were just very vulnerable at this time. They had no people. Uh, It's just different culture. Now, I mean, you you could leave here and move and and basically what would carry you in another city if you moved there was your accomplishments, right? You would take with you what? Your resume, right? And you go, look, these are the things that I've accomplished as a person. Well, uh, they cared less about that than what your people had accomplished, right? Your name. And so they're just left without this name and this this tragic position. And not only that, she's from another foreign country and in this really vulnerable, vulnerable place. I think sometimes I read this story um, And I think of Ruth as just kind of just really sweet and quiet and uh, calm and just this this sweetness about, they're in poverty. Like they're in abject poverty. She's lost her husband. She has really no hope and no future. She's in a foreign land and she has nothing. They're left to do what the destitute do, which is go and try to find what they can on the streets to eat. And we're introduced to this new, beginning in this, uh, this uh, prologue of, of Act 2, uh, we see, we're introduced to this new person. Naomi was a relative of her, uh, sorry, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man, uh, a, a worthy man, uh, possibly a strong man, a, a man of great prominence that was well respected, yeah? So this worthy man named Boaz, we're just told this information, right? This is kind of a heading of the whole section of, of Act 2, this hint. And so Ruth, uh, the Moabite, says to Naomi, let me go into the fields and glean among the ears of grain after who I can find favor. Let me, let me just go out there and find. She initiates this. Let me go out in the world and see what I can do. I love this strength, right? Whatever I can do, I'm going to go do. So she's going to go out and glean uh, in these really tough times, not with a smiling face, brutal hunger, loss of a husband, tragic situation. Not only that, she is a widow and a Moabite. So uh, there's actually verse, a verse in the Bible or, or, or rules in, in the Pentateuch that say Moabites aren't allowed into the temple, into the tabernacle. They can't come worship God for the 10th generation because of something they did. Can you believe that? 10 generations you're not allowed into. Now, there's some debate about exactly what that means, about how that was and whether that would have applied to Ruth or not. There's some debate about that, but here's what's clear. Uh, People don't love Moabites, right? That's that's obvious. Whether or not she's going to, she's just a foreigner. She's not going to be accepted in the same way. And it's pretty clear from the rest of scripture leading up to this point. So this is the situation she finds herself in. So she goes out to glean. So one of the things I love about, it's so fascinating. So when God sets up laws, when God gives, he creates his people and he gives them laws, he, one of the things that he did is he, in the laws, he provides for the poor. 
There's, there's rules, right? And she says, look, I'm going to go out and look for food. But the truth is, like, it, was a, it was a right for her as a widow. It was right for her as, a, as, as someone who was poor to be able to glean. There were rules about it. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Leviticus 9, uh, uh, Leviticus 9, 9 and 10 says this. 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Hey, whenever you hear that, I am the Lord your God, that's like, like, a, that's like 19 exclamation points, right? That's like, I am God. Do you hear me? Right? Like, that's kind of like this, like, you know. So they, also in Deuteronomy, it says this. Oh, that's not right at all. I, I put the wrong verse in there. Uh, in Deuteronomy 19, it says, it says, you have to leave it for widows. It just says, I don't know where the winged insect thing came from, but that's my fault. Uh, but uh, it says that you have to leave the gleanings. You cannot glean the corners. You have to leave the edges, and you cannot leave them for, or so you cannot pick them up yourselves. So you would go out, and if you had a field, right, if you're a landowner, which is a big deal back then, right, bigger deal today than, than it is today, when you had land, there's all these rules about land and how, who could have it, and you would have these boundary markers set, and you would go out, and in the time of the harvest, you would, you would go out and you would, you would reap. You would have somebody come through, and it seems to be at least at this time uh, that we're talking about now, and at least the way they did it in, this, in Bethlehem at the time, is you would have young men come through, and they would cut down, right, right? They would cut it down, and they would gather it together, and then you'd have somebody come behind it uh, and, and, and bundle it together. The young women would come behind and bundle it together, and the servants would carry it off. Anything that fell to the ground has to be left. Anything on the edges and the corners has to be left for the poor to come and gather so that they're always provided for. Beautiful, 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 right? So she says, listen, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna glean. Maybe somebody will show me favor. Even though it's a right, she doesn't presume. Maybe she doesn't know the laws. Maybe she doesn't know the rules. Or maybe, maybe if you were a landowner, you had ways of keeping people away. Because right, there's wiggle room here, right? How far is an edge, right? How, how, I'm not supposed to glean the corners? That, that's not a size, right? That's, like, how, so how do I judge? Probably based on the size of your heart, right? Like, how do you care? And so if you were a landowner, and she's like, maybe I'll find a landowner that will, show, that will let me, a Moabite woman, glean and has left enough corner, has left enough edge, will not pick up after me, but, and, and let me be there. So his, this, is, this is what the situation is. It's so, it's so beautiful, right? Um, anyway, so this is what happens next. Uh, act... Two, scene one. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean to another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eye be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to them, Why have I f- said to him, Why have I found favor in your eye? That you should take notice of me. I'm a foreigner. And Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before? 
The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz came to her, said, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean, even among the sheaves, do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, leave it for her to glean, don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. So this beautiful scene, um, this worthy man uh, comes, he is a landowner, or at least he owns part. It sounds like there's probably a huge field and you would probably have boundary stones that set up what part you had, right? the, the part that you owned. And so they come to this, she comes to this part uh, of this land and, and there's this landowner named Boaz and Boaz has heard what she's done. That she has left her family, she's left, she lost her husband, that she's come with Naomi and that she's out there working to care for Naomi. And this Boaz is a family member of Elimelech, uh, Naomi's dead husband husband. He's a clan member and he's just overwhelmed and impressed with Naomi and he, sorry, impressed with Ruth and he begins to provide for her by making sure not only is she allowed to glean but also that she's protected, that she's fed and she has plenty to drink, that she's able to do the work. Not only that, that she gets even extra. So there's this kindness. Hey, you know what? Heard what you've done. Please stay here. And there's lunch. Additional kindness. Come, eat with us. And there's an additional kindness as she goes back to work. She tells the people as they follow her, drop extra for her. There's this additional kindness. So at the end of the day, she has enough food. You know, I don't know what an ephah is either. Like, I don't know how you measure, but I'm using like cups and stuff like that, right? Not ephahs at the house. But best, best I can guess, best, best studies is that some people, like 20 liters, enough food for several weeks is what most people agree. Conservative estimates, enough food for several weeks for two people. And, and so she has all of this food at the end of the day. Because of Boaz's kindness, because of what he's heard about who she's done. Now, here's, here's the thing. Here's why I love this so much. Um, because, I, I, you know how I get about the authors, like how clever they can be? Listen to how he starts this section. She um, behold a... Uh, so she set out and, and went and gleaned in a field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. No, like that, there's nothing in the rest of the story that would make you think that the author thinks that it just happened. This, this is like me telling me, sorry, like, you know, like, and I ran into him. It just, just happened that I was there. No, no, it doesn't just happen. Like, like it's setting you up for this beautiful story going like, uh, and it just so happened that she arrives at Boaz's field, right? Everything in this story is to set up and prepare us. I would say that perhaps one, of, if not the, one of the primary things that Ruth teaches us about how the world works is that there is a providential God, all right, let, let's, I don't, not only are there tough times in life, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but even the good times have tough spots. You know what I mean? Like, trying to figure out how to manage 
not just life, but my own thoughts, my own feelings, is just almost impossible. It feels outside of my control so often. Like, how am I supposed to understand and place all of these things in my head? You know, I don't know that we were built as human beings to know about floods in Pakistan and earthquakes. Like, how are we supposed to process not just local elections? I don't even, I'm not 100% sure. Like, I wouldn't put money on who the mayor of Hoover is. I know, I'm supposed to know, but I wouldn't put money on that I'm 100% sure. In fact, I think the guy that I name I remember, I think he's gone now, but I can't remember. Anyway, much less the state level, the national level, international level. There's so many things happening in the world, and I struggle just to set my priorities right in the morning. Like, how am I supposed to have the strength to handle all of the things that happen in the world? Where does that strength come from? And here, here, let me just say it this way. Like, I just, I want the strength that she has. I want the strength to Ruth, of Ruth, to, to look at hard times to get up in the morning to say, listen, I'm going to do whatever I have to do today. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean and go out into the world and have the strength to be what she's supposed to be. How do we have the strength in a in the right way. Because everybody's looking for the strength to get through, right? Like there's so many ways, so many self-help books basically could be some, summarized as, here's how you have the strength to get through the things you need to get through. Here's the strength to have what you want. Here's how you have the strength to get what you need. Here's how to have the strength to take care of yourself. Like it's, it's, it's how do you get and lay hold of things to make your life go a certain way. And this story in Ruth tells us how we have a strength that is only available in a specific way to us. Here's what I mean. Ruth's strength, strength comes from this belief, this trust in a God that you can rest in. Right? So that's what Elimelech says, as a matter of fact, Naomi said it to her on the way home. On the way home, they're coming back and she says to the, to the daughter, she goes, go back home, go back to your families, go back and find a rest. That's what Naomi wants for them. She says, listen, may, may go, she prays for them, go find rest back in your home. And Ruth says, nope, I find rest in Yahweh. And this is, what, this is what Boaz prays for her. When Boaz meets her and he hears what she's done, you know what he prays? He says, may God bless you. May the, may the God that you have come to rest, to come underneath his wings, the God under whose loving trust, this picture of a bird, whole, under the wings, that you, uh, the wings of this God that you've come to trust, may you find reward and rest. There's a strength that comes from proper resting. I so often, I'm the first person to be like, well, just get up earlier, stay up later. You'll be fine. Like, work harder. Like, I'm that guy. Like, no problem at all. Like, you sleep in six hours? What are you, a baby? Sleep four hours. Like, you don't, like, how many, go, I'm that guy, right? Like, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. That's how you lay home. That's how you have the strength is just work harder than the next person. But the reality is, the way that we have a strength that allows us to be like 
Ruth is that we have to find the proper thing to rest in. When I say get up earlier, work harder, I'm gonna work harder than the next guy, here's what I'm saying. I rest and trust in my ability to beat you. And that works great until when? Until I don't, right? Until I lose, until I can't, until I break, until I reach the end, until I end up in the hospital, which happened multiple times from just, the doctor was like, every time I go on vacation for the first seven years uh, that I I was here at the church, every time I go on vacation, I would get deathly ill day one. My wife was livid. It was almost like my body was like, hey, there's, oh, we're going on vacation? Great, there's some things we haven't told you. And I would get deathly ill like day one, every year. It's crazy. Our strength is limited, and I spend so much of my life resting and trusting in my own strength. But here's the truth. Even if that were possible for me, do you see how limiting that is? What a terrible worldview that is? That's only available to a few of us. That's not available to Ruth. Hey, immigrant in a foreign land with no life, no hope, no prospects, just work harder than everybody else. But she hasn't done that. What she said is, I've come to rest and I trust in your God. He is my God. Boaz recognizes this and says, you deserve, I, I am praying that God blesses you because you have come to rest and trust in God. Here's what she's doing. What she's saying is, even though the life in front of me looks terrible, I believe in this God that I will find rest and comfort, that I will find completeness and wholeness. I don't know how it's gonna look. I know it looks really, really scary right now, but I will rest and trust in him and his providential guiding all the way through human history more than going back and finding a husband, more than going back to my family. I trust in the rest that this God will provide. Providence is this... um, it's not a biblical word. It show, that word doesn't show up, but it's, a, it, it's, it's just all the way through scripture. It is God's loving governance and care over all of his creation, guiding it to an outcome that he has purposed and desired, which will be for ultimately for his, his glory and which is where we find our good, all right? Different sermon series. But that is what it's for, God guiding and directing all of human history, right? Which is why it's so helpful when we read scripture, right? That you see that God, at the very beginning from when humans said, you know what, we can figure this out for ourselves, thanks, but we're gonna go our own way. We see from that moment of the fall all the way through scripture, even especially through Ruth, we see God governing and guiding all of human history. I'm going to raise up the descendants of this man named Abraham, and I'm going to bless the whole world through them. Do you believe in his providential care in that? And people are like, well, you don't know how this is going to work out. That seems crazy that you're going to do that. How are you going to fix everything? He even says in Genesis 3, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rescue you guys. I'm going to set everything right, even though you've rebelled through a descendant of this woman, and there's going to come a time when I'm going to destroy everything and make everything new. All the way through the prophets, God is coming, and he's going to write his name on on, on our hearts. How is this going to happen? And then Jesus comes and so much is, we see so much. You look back and you see so much. It's why Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they're talking to him and he says, don't you understand that all the things that had to happen, they had to happen the way that they did. Didn't you read the Old Testament? Haven't you read scriptures? Don't you know that this had to be this way? God providentially guiding every step to bring to fulfillment his plan for his glory and our good, the good of those that trust in him. This is one of the primary themes of Ruth. It's one of the primary things that shows up all the way to the Bible, that God cares for you. Now, I am not going to pretend that that doesn't have questions that come 
up with it, right? That it's not difficult and challenging, right? Uh, about God's sovereignty and human. But here's the deal. Here's why this is so much different. This is such a radical, radically different way of understanding the world. Because what are your other choices? Pantheon, pantheism says what? Like all the world is God, right? There's no, it's just kind of the world is God. There's no God outside of it orienting and driving it. Uh, uh, any kind of dualism or multi-gods, you're just hoping that the God that you're in favor of wins. There's no providential, there's no providential guiding. Even if you go, listen, even if you go, hey, listen, I am agnostic, right? God created everything and set it spinning. There's no providential guidance. He just set it spinning. That's not comforting at all. Atheism, that's really kind of determinate, right? Like determinism, right? I mean, there is no God, like all this just happened and really your own thoughts and your best hopes, love, all the great and all the bad. There is no good and evil. It's just the reaction. It just is what it happened. There's no good. There's no guidance. We just, you know, hoping for the best. Hoping we don't crash into a meteor tomorrow. There's no hope there. The beauty of this text is that God, there is a God who is providentially guiding all things, all of human history towards this glorious, beautiful end where we get to dwell with him again and we can rest when faith is needed no more because we will be there and experience the love and, and, the, and the, the fulfillment that we are seeking in so many other places that we're trying to find the strength of to find in so many other places that we, find, we will finally have it in him. He's guiding all things that direction. This is the beauty of the providence of God. And that's what the story is. She just happened into this field? Mm-mm. What this is set against the backdrop of, of uh, judges is that God works out his providence, his guiding of history, that he, when we rest in it, he's working it out not just on a national level, not on a huge level, not on an, uh, just on us looking back 2,000 years, but it happens in my life and your life when we rest in him every single day. It happens in the lives of widows and the lives of kings. It happens in Bluff Park and it happens worldwide. God is guiding things towards your good. There's a strength that comes from being able to rest in that reality. When you recognize somebody is more competent than you and you give up control, it's just way, way better, right? Like it's just, one of my, this is a moment, I was, Gibson was little, not, I mean, it's been, it's been some years and we're up at the Bluff Park pool up here or whatever it's called, Chase Cliff. And uh, they'll shut down the well, right? The, the, the diving well. To do the swim tests and to let the, let the little kids come jump off the diving board. And uh, there's the dad. The dad was in the pool, right? And this little girl, she had on her water wings and she was all decked out. I mean, she was going to float, like, you know, real well. Uh, and, and so she's just, and he's standing there and he's just like begging her to jump. Like, he's like, come on, you got it. And she's just standing there just looking. And like, I, from her perspective, you get it, right? Like, like, I can't swim. Like, you want me to jump down? Like, I, like she's terrified, and he's just trying to convince her, it's gonna, everything's going to be fine, just trust me. And, like, he's just like, come on, and it's, like, going on, it's gotten, like, a little too long, right? There's a line, and everybody's looking, and he kind of glances over me, and I catch eyes with him, and I'm like, <clears throat> and I look away. There's this very awkward moment where he, we, we both knew, like, this wasn't going to happen. And, and like, but I, I just remember thinking at that time, like, yeah, that's so much of my life. Right? Is God just going like, no, why, like, I get that it looks scary, but I've told you that I'll be with you. Why won't you jump? And me going like, are you crazy? That's terrifying. I don't want to do that. It's much safer up here on dry land. Why would I do that? 
And, and, and I get so terrified of the life that God, I, mean, I remember when I was like, hey, I'm gonna go to seminary. Uh, I remember thinking, just like horrified, like, what if, I, like what, if, what if I go to seminary and somehow in the process, like I feel like God's called me to be the children's minister. What a nightmare. Maybe I shouldn't go at all. Right? The idea that he's gonna guide me somewhere I really don't wanna go, right? Something I'm really poorly equipped to deal with, right? Now though, I do it in a heartbeat. I love kids. You get older, you know. God calling us to things that we don't understand. Our instincts are to grab for strength ourselves, to outwork ourselves, to rest in our own capacity, and we wonder why we feel like we're being pulled apart. Maybe because you weren't designed to hold the entire universe together. And we feel like we're trying to hold our lives together and the universe together, and what we want is the strength of Ruth. And you know what she did? She just rested that whatever God brought her was good. Because he was competent and he was good. He just, she just rested in that. I don't understand this. I don't get this. It's terrifying to me. But you know what? I'm just going to trust in you. I'm going to trust that you're good and that you can handle it and that you are guiding not just all of history, but my life as well for my good. This is the story all the way through scripture. It is so, so beautiful. There's also a strength that comes in just humility, Right? She goes into this field. She doesn't expect. I think so much. Of, so many of my problems uh, with God's providential uh, um, uh, rule and His care uh, is that um, not only that it doesn't go the way that I want it to go, um, but that it requires me being so humble. And whatever comes from His hand, I accept, good or bad. She has this humility about her that allows her to be strong. There's a kindness that only comes from strength. There is a gentleness that only comes from the strong. And we see this in her as she just is humble, not only about what God is going to bring me, but even in her dealings with her situation, she's not like, hey, you know what? You can't kick me off this field. I deserve to be here with great gratitude that she's found a place. She longed for a place of favor. She found a place of favor and she was grateful. There's a strength that comes from us being able to be humble and be grateful. And the truth is, is that for the most of us, either life will humiliate us, humble us, right? You, things happen and you become humbled, or you can declare war on pride. I mean, I don't want you to find yourself in the position of Ruth, but I do want us to have the humility of Ruth. So how do we do that? We declare war on pride. We declare war on our ability to control everything. We do this with constant attention to what God is doing in scriptures and in our life, a constant attention going, hey, you know what? I'm gonna rest in you and I'm gonna trust in you. And you know what? My entire life demonstrates that I'm really bad at holding everything together, so I'm just going to let you handle these things, God. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be true. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to have a loyal love that you've taught me to have and follow you in these things, but I'm going to stop trying to manage and dictate how my life comes out. I think one of the problems we have as humans is we just don't accept the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds. It's one of our great flaws, right? We don't know about the future and we try to manage it all so it all feels so at some point in our life like it could all fall away. And one of the things that uh, is beautiful about this story uh, uh, as pro- God's providential working is, that, that is this prayer of Boaz. Boaz prays. He says, hey, may, I've heard what you've done and may the God under whose wings you have taken refuge 
May he bless you. May he reward you. That's Boaz's prayer for Ruth. I love it. Because it, it, it's just so true that so often God's blessing to us in our life comes through each other, right? Does that make sense? Ruth is going to be blessed by God and he's going to do it through Boaz, right? It's one of the ways he's going to do it. He's going to bless her life through Boaz, providing food uh, later in the story, uh, a family, but she's going to provide, God is going to provide for Ruth through Boaz. In this praying of this prayer, he doesn't just pray, but he also does something about it at the same time. It's almost as if we're supposed to pray for this blessing, call for this blessing, pray to him to heal us, but then also he calls us into action. How about this? God is providentially guiding all of thing, all of history towards an outcome, and sometimes he uses you and me to do that. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes he uses us in caring for his creation and one another. I would say very often he uses us in caring, in this Boaz, this worthy man God uses to bring the blessing into Ruth's life and Naomi's life that he asks for God. Sometimes we're praying for a thing. God, just do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. God, I just pray for my neighbor, I pray for my neighbor, I pray for my neighbor, I pray for my neighbor. And one day, God's gonna tell you, I need you to go knock on the door. Right? You prayed that you would send help, and guess what? I'm sending help. It's you. God works that way and uses us in engaging all of human history and in, in, in working out his things. So um, this is what happens. She uh, measures out. Uh, she gets to the end of the day. She's full. She has food. Uh, and she takes it home. And uh, scene two, act two, starts in verse 18. She picks up all that she had. She went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also, uh, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also uh, brought out and gave her the food that she left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Another prayer for blessing. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by Yahweh, by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. This is dangerous work. Dangerous work for a Moabite. And, and so for a woman and for a Moabite. And so Ruth and Naomi recognize what's happened. She, her mind is blown and she says, listen, this is unbelievable, right? This God, the, God's providential working. I can't believe this has happened because not only has Boaz provided for us and not only has he given you for today, for weeks, but he's given you a job. He said, stay near me for the rest of the harvest so that you can have enough food. And at this rate, some people think that she could, they could have had enough food almost for the entire year if she kept gleaning at this rate. Not only has... Boaz provided, not only has God provided through Boaz for this food, but even more, he's also potentially one of their redeemers. We're gonna get into that later, but because lamb was such a big deal, somebody who could basically rescue them, could buy the land that Elimelech, out of Elimelech's clan, could, could take care of them, provide for them. So there's also so much more. There's so much that could be done. This is not just providential in the food, but possibly for the future as well. And that's the hint that we get at the end of this, that this is an amazing thing. This is a potential 
success, a potential hope anyway. What I love about this so much, though, is, um, I mean, I just think about this day, right? I mean, think how the day ended. She comes home with all this food, enough food for a few weeks, enough food for tonight, a job that's going to get them probably through the end of the year, and also possibly future prospects for prosperity. Unbelievable. Think how she left the house that morning. She didn't, you know, look in the mirror and self-actualize, right? She didn't look in the mirror and be like, you work hard, you will get what you deserve. No, I'm going to go out, I'm going to trust in God's providence, I'm going to trust in his provision, and she went out and she was faithful. That's what she did. (laughs) What a gift that our God's economy is not ours. I mean, our economy is based on, like, you get out of it what you put into it, right? <laughs> like, that's, how we, that's how we operate in the world, right? There's this amazing story uh, in the New Testament. Jesus is uh, this standing ground at the, the temple, and all these people are coming up, and they're like, you know, they had a box where everybody would do- donate money, right? And it was apparently this big show, right? People come by and, like, jingling a bunch of coins and dropping them, making a big, you know, big show about it, right? And uh, this, this widow, this uh, lady, this woman comes up, and she drops in just like that, like almost nothing, just pennies, right? Two mites, right? She drops it in, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, she gave more than anybody else. How? Well, because everybody else gave out of their excess, out of the way I had left over. She gave all that she had. God's economy doesn't work like ours, right? Some, you look, sometimes it's easy to look at our lives and go, I can't give what they have. I can't invest what they have. God's economy doesn't work like ours economy does. He takes what you have, and when you give it to him, it multiplies in ways that we can't even dream of. I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. Hey, just get up tomorrow morning, leave here today, be faithful, rest in God's goodness, take what he's given you and pour it into somebody else. And his economy does things you can't even dream of. Isn't that a beautiful gift? His providential guiding says it doesn't matter what you're starting from, it doesn't matter where you are, that God will take what you give to him and use it in ways you can't even dream of, all to providentially guide history for the glory of God and for your good. What a gift. The story is amazing. God's economy. She just got up that morning and was faithful. Imagine what God will do over time if we get up in the morning, rest in him, give to him what he's owed, stop trying to control our lives, stop trying to manage every little detail, stop trying to hold everything together when it feels like it's coming apart, and rest in him. Here's the deal. When we try to manage and control everything, what we're really resting and trusting in is our own ability to handle everything. When we give that up and just handle what God gives us and say, listen, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put glorifying Christ first. My, salva- my salvation, uh, or sorry, the salvation that I received from him, I'm going to put that first in my life. It enables you to do all of the other things so much better. It puts them in the proper place in your heart. That's what we see in the story of Ruth. When we rest in God, there is a strength. When we are kind and we loyally love like we're called to do, there is a strength. When we turn that over to God, whatever we invest, there is a strength far beyond ours that comes. If you want to be what this world needs, a non-anxious presence in the middle of chaos, be strong like her. 
Like rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in the reality that God is providentially guiding all things. Rest in when you get up and you give what you have that he will multiply it in ways you can't even dream of. This is what we do. This is why this is such a, one of the reasons it's such a beautiful story. And then it finishes this way. This is the epilogue. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That's the epilogue. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful play, this beautiful story, this beautiful reality that is revealed that you are a providential God, that even up to and including and beyond death, you are providing for our good, no matter what it looks like. When it looks like poverty, when it looks like loss, when we surrender and trust you, you are guiding us to amazing and beautiful things. This is how you are, a God that takes what we give and multiplies it in unbelievable ways. May we draw strength from resting in you. May we draw strength and stop and and ceasing trying to manage and control the future. We're poorly equipped to do it. May we rest in you and see your goodness. May we trust in your way. Guide us. Guide our thinking and our feeling to you as you order our loves so that we might have the strength of Ruth, a strength that rests and a strength that trusts, a strength that ceases trying to manage and control. We are grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.